Church, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 4 and find verse 35 as we prepare to close out chapter 4 today. Today we step in what I would say is a familiar story. One that I am certain you have heard preached before. Jesus and His disciples cross the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus sleeps, a great storm arises. Threatens the ship and the safety of those on it. The disciples are terrified. They're fearing for their lives. So they wake Jesus up. And Jesus simply speaks to the wind. And a great calm arises. The text ends, as we'll see in just a few moments, with the disciples asking a question among themselves. It can be summed up in this way. Who is this man? Now the approach that many take when preaching this text is simply this. And I'm sure you've heard this before. Jesus can calm the storms in your life. Anyone ever heard that before? This is a text they pull from and and, and, and use. Yet as we come to these verses, we have to wonder and we have to ask as we approach these verses, is this the point of the passage? And what I want us to see from the very beginning this morning, even before we've read the text and we'll read it in just a moment, is that if we just read this text and walk away and just simply say, Jesus can calm the storms in your life, we miss the broader point of this passage. There is so much more here than just simply that. And what happens when we just simply say that is we completely uh, sidestep the reason Mark includes this story in his gospel. So as I started and said that many of us have heard this passage preached before, my prayer is this, that God would cause us to see this passage with fresh eyes as we examine it together today. I always try to share with you my points before we read the the passage. My points are this. Following Jesus can be costly. Following Jesus can be confusing. And last, following Jesus is worth it all. With that in mind, let's read our verses today. Again, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark writes here and says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep, on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace. Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Oh, what a story, church. Let's pray. Father, as we approach these verses, Just simply pray that you'd be glorified. You'd speak to us and you'd guide us in our time together this morning. We do love you, Lord. And we pray that as we approach this time together, that we would all be drawn nearer to you than we are in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Familiar verses, right? A familiar story. And for a good reason. This is, this is an exciting story, right? We've heard it. We've probably seen paintings and, and heard this retold in different ways. This story is not only found in the Gospel of Mark. It's also found in Matthew and in Luke. Can you imagine it though? Just imagine being there. Trying to cross this sea when suddenly, without warning, a great storm arises. One that threatens your boat and your life. Where you feel as though you're completely at the mercy of the waves. Now all the while, you struggle and fear for your life. The one that you have committed your life to is where? Sleeping. In the stern. And Mark uh, gives us a, a little detail that's not found in Matthew or Luke. He tells us that Jesus wasn't just asleep. He was sleeping on a cushion. Did you notice that? He wanted to be comfortable when he was asleep, right? Now, if you were in the shoes of the apostles, what are you thinking? What are you feeling in this moment? I have to wonder, did they begin to question their life decisions? I can imagine certainly some of them did. It would honestly be hard not to, right? I mean, we've been in moments like that where you are facing some type of struggle. Maybe you can relate in, in a place where you've been near to death and, and you wonder, where did I mess up? Where did I go wrong? As we consider this, and as we strive to understand and place ourselves there in that moment, let's back up for just a moment and, and deal with the context of these verses. Start with again in verse 35. Look at it with me and see how it starts. Mark tells us on that day when evening had come. So he's connecting us here to what has preceded these verses. And he's telling us that what has happened prior to this point is how happening on the same day. You can go back all the way to Mark uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. And I ask you to, to turn there with me just really quickly. Because this is where it starts. This is where Jesus' day began. Verse 1, again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and set in on it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. This was Jesus' day. He stood in a boat, proclaimed the word of God in parables to the people. That's what we've covered over the last several weeks as we've looked at each parable. So we've walked through this chapter. We don't know how long Jesus taught the crowd. But obviously when he got done, he was tired, right? As they began to, to go across the sea. Now there's something else that's worth noting in our minds as, as we prepare to approach these verses. It's not just what we have seen before, but what comes after. And something else to, to consider even long before these verses in Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see Jesus facing opposition from the religious leaders of the day. It was commonplace already at this point. Even though we haven't seen it in Mark chapter 4, I think it's relevant as we come to the story and as we ponder what's going on in these verses that we remember that Jesus was faced with great opposition. And again, we want to also look at what comes after these verses. Go ahead and flip to Mark 5 just very quickly. We won't read any one verse here. I just want to give you the context of what comes after. Because just at, because we're at the end of Mark chapter 4 does not mean that everything cuts off at the end of this chapter. and We thought, start a new story or a new thought in the next. This 
this story that we are looking at is the bridge between what happens in Mark 4 and what is going to happen in Mark 5. And I would actually argue that our verses here at the end of chapter 4 are tied more closely with what we will see in chapter 5. Now, if you're there in chapter 5, you may notice that it is broken into two large stories. First, the first half is Jesus healing a man with a demon. It's, it's the sole reason that he crosses the sea at the end of Mark chapter 4. He goes across, he heals this man, casts out these demons, and then he leaves the area. That's the only thing he does there. Crosses the sea for one man. We'll talk about that next week. But then the second half, from verse 21 on to the end, we see Jesus healing a woman that had this problem of bleeding, had had it for years. And then we also see him raising a girl who had died, a young girl, Jairus' daughter. Now I say that it is tied more closely to these stories because in each of these stories, we see an amazing display of the authority and the power of Christ on display. Think with me on this. Jesus demonstrates his authority over the elements in our verses today. After that, in the next section, he demonstrates his authority over demons. And in the last section of chapter 5, he demonstrates his authority over physical ailments and ultimately his authority over death. Now, I share all of that with you just so that we can see how what is happening in the end of Mark 4 is building up into Mark 5, that they are connected together. So let us resist the temptation to just rip this out of its context, but see it where it lies it's very important we keep that in mind. All right, so back to Mark 4, 35. Now that we see how these verses are positioned in Mark, let's jump right into our first point, and it is this. Following Jesus can be costly. Let's reread the start of our verses today and jump back into the mindset of the apostles. Verse 35, On that day when evening had come, He said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. I think we could agree, church, that there are moments in our lives, we've already talked about it, but, but just to, to remind you, when we step back and question the decisions that we have made that has brought us to where we are, has anyone else in here done that, or is that just me? Just me, huh? Uh, we all do it at different times, right? And typically, it happens in moments like these apostles are found in, where they are faced with great difficulty or faced with great danger. And we reflect on the decisions that have brought us to this point in time. We can imagine this happening among the twelve in our verses today. Again, try to place yourself in the moment with them. At least four of them knew this sea. They had potentially grown up on this sea. They made their living on this sea. Certainly, these four would have been accustomed to storms, to rough waters at times. I mean, it, it certainly, it goes with the territory of their job. But there's something else going on here, right? This is a moment here across the board with the twelve. There's a moment of corporate concern. And knowing that there were four fishermen on board that made a living on this sea has to change the way we read these verses. These four men would have known how to navigate difficult waters. 
yet along with the rest, they are panicking. Now, I tried to put this in, in something uh, of uh, something I could relate to today. Uh, I've, I've never been out on the Sea of Galilee, never even been out on the ocean or anything like that, but I have flown in a plane. A lot of people get nervous on a plane, right? You experience turbulence on a plane, but it's part of the ride. It's part of the, the process going from uh, one place to another. For the most part, people are okay with it, or at least they do not panic because of it. And in part, it's because you have experts that fly with you on the plane, right? The, the people that, that serve you drinks and foods, and as long as they're not panicking, everything's good, right? I mean, if, if you're worried, you can look at them, and if they're still serving drinks and still moving up and down the aisle, you know, you can at least tell yourself everything is fine. However, imagine being on a flight where you see the flight crew becoming anxious and concerned because of the turbulence. Well, now that's a different story altogether, right? These people fly all the time, and if they're panicking, there's a reason to panic, right? That's where we are here in this story with these four. Storms would have been a normal thing to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, yet here in this story, it seems to be different. There was fear. There was panic. It would, have, would not have given people like Matthew any comfort at all. <laughs> you see Peter and John panicking. It's just going to add to the panic. Now, I frame all of this up because I want you to see that it would have been reasonable for these men at this time to question the decisions that have brought them to this point. Their life decisions brought them here. And it cannot help being connected to the man that is sleeping in this brutal storm. They've witnessed Jesus heal people at this point. They've heard him speak to masses. They've witnessed him stirring up the religious leaders of the day. However, at this point, there has to be a spark of concern among them. There has to be this wonder. What have I gotten myself into? You know, as we look at this story, especially the first part of it, we cannot help but connect it to another story that's found in Scripture. Not in the New Testament, but the Old Testament. Remember the story of a prophet who is running from God, who ends up in a boat down Low, sleeping, and then a storm comes up. And the people that he's traveling with begin to panic. They fear greatly. They begin to throw off their cargo. They go down and they wake him up and they say, pray, we're going to die. There's similarities here, isn't there? You know, the story of Jonah is not just one that we know. It's a story they would have known. They would have grown up with it. Can you imagine being in this moment? The disciples thinking, reflecting on how Jesus had angered the religious leaders. How he did not fit with their expectation of the day. And every moment as the storm continues and the fear rises in them, as they become more desperate, there has to be this thought, what have I done? And here, churches, where we must be reminded of what Jesus had, has told us for those that would follow after him. I want us to leave Mark 4 behind for just a moment and go with me to Luke chapter 14, if you would. Just one book to the right. Luke 14 and find verse 25, if you would. 
In chapter 14 of Luke, we have much teaching from Christ. And near the end of this teaching segment, we have some verses that I would like for us to focus in on and read together. Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those are rough verses, right? Where Jesus plainly tells those who are trying to follow him that if you place earthly affection before our affection towards him, then you are not worthy to be his disciple. Those are harsh words. Those are hard words. And following up with that, he makes this statement about carrying our own cross. This would have rocked people to their core. This is not the way to gather a following, Jesus. Don't you know that? You can't teach them hard things. Yet this is the reality. Following Jesus, church, can be costly. Jesus understood that. We must be reminded that the work he did cost him his very life. Jesus carries on in these verses. Look again at verse 28, still in Luke 14. Let's read the rest of this section here. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He ends it with this verse in 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I love the example Jesus uses here. He gives us two. First, it's a man that's building a tower. And because he did not count the cost, he was not able to complete it. It's a sad thing. Laid the foundation and then could not continue. The second example, here we have a king who is going to go out to war against another. And in his preparation, he will certainly take into account whether or not he is able to win. Jesus uses these two examples to urge those around him. Don't follow me half-heartedly. It's all or nothing. If you are to follow Christ, it will require all of you. That's exactly what we just read in verse 33. Look at it again. Not adding anything to Jesus' words here. He says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Far too long it has been proclaimed that following Jesus will not cost you anything. Church, that is not the picture we have painted in the Gospels. The gospel gives us a completely different picture. Jesus tells us that following him will cost us everything. It could cost us our very lives. And Jesus made that extremely clear. And we have seen that play out throughout the ages. 
Now go back with me to, to Mark 4. Now what are we talking about here? We're jumping back into our first point that following Jesus can be costly. Too many people take a look at these verses and falsely claim that Jesus will calm whatever storm you are facing in this life. You know what we fail to see when we say things like that? We fail to see that it was Jesus that led these disciples into this storm. Like it was Jesus that wanted them to cross the sea, right? Now hear me clearly, church. Jesus never promised us a worry-free life. He never promised us physical healing. He never guaranteed great wealth and prosperity. He never promised us a life free of pain. You know what He promised us though? What He told the apostles? Mark 10, 22. You will be hated by all for My name's sake. And in John 15, 20, he tells them, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You know what Jesus is guaranteeing us in our verses today and throughout the Gospels? He is guaranteeing storms in this life. In fact, there will be times, church, where he will lead us right into them. Now, before we jump too far to Jesus wants to calm the storm in your life, we have to be reminded that Jesus sometimes leads us into the storm. As we look at this, we have to wonder why, right? Why would Jesus lead us into difficult situations? And in the case of our story today, be silent in the middle of these struggles. So not only did he lead his apostles into this, he went to sleep. He let them panic for a while. It leads us into our next point. Following Jesus can be confusing. Verse 38. Back in Mark 4, let's read it again together. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Oh, this is such a typical response, isn't it? And at this point, friend, I'm, I'm reminded we are so much like the disciples. How often do we act in the same way they did when something in life is unexpected and causes us grief? How often are we found turning to God and questioning His love toward us? It happens, right? It's what we're really dealing with when we have moments like this. What we have happen is, is God doesn't act. He doesn't always act in the way we expect Him to. To say it differently in a way that goes with our point here, following God can be confusing. And it's not just here in these verses. Think about it throughout the Word of God. Noah was told to build a huge boat to prepare for a great flood. Now that had to be confusing for Noah, right? And his family that dedicated themselves to this task. What about Abraham? If we consider Abraham, he was told to sacrifice his son of promise that he had waited more than 20 years to receive. That doesn't always make sense, does it? What about Job? We jump into the story of Job. We see that he was tested and tried by Satan. At the encouragement of God. Remember how that story opens up? It was God that pointed Satan to Job. That's confusing, isn't it? What about Moses when he's leading the Israelites out of Egypt? And they come to the edge of the Red Sea. As an army comes and they're, they're blocked in. There's nowhere where they can go. 
fact, the Egyptians started to panic, or not the Egyptians, the Israelites started to panic at that point. Or David, a boy, standing before a giant for whom he had no reason to be able to prevail. Confusing, isn't it? In all of these accounts, and many more throughout the Word, we find God acting in ways that can be confusing to us. There's a scripture saying, Isaiah, His ways are higher than our ways, His thoughts, not our thoughts. We look to God, and we expect Him to respond in situations in ways that we think would benefit us. However, in these moments of confusion, we also learn something about God that we could not have learned otherwise. Think about those scenarios we just went through. Noah, through the flood, what did he learn? He learned that God is gracious and God is merciful. At the start of that story, we're told that Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It was only because God looked upon him and showed grace. What about Abraham? When he went to sacrifice Isaac and was stopped, what did he learn? He learned that God is a God who provides a substitute. And what a story that looks ahead to Christ, who is our great substitute. Job learned that God is to be praised regardless of the circumstances that he is found in. Moses and the people of Israel learned that God is a God who makes a way where there is no way. By parting the Red Sea, walking through on dry ground. David learned that God can be trusted and should be followed. And that greatly impacted his reign as king. We have to realize that without difficulty, without struggles, without confusing situations, we are not given the opportunity to grow in our knowledge of who God is. We even see this reflecting in the letters to the churches. It's why James writes the way he does in chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know... <clears throat> For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He tells them to count it joy that they are to rejoice as trials arise before them. Not only are trials and struggles expected for those who follow Jesus, but we are told to rejoice as they arise. Excuse me. Church, this can be confusing, right? It doesn't always make sense to us. Jump back to the disciples in this day. They were certainly confused, right? How could Jesus sleep through this storm? Does he not care what happens to them? Why would he lead them into such a difficult situation? More than that, go back to verse 38. We're still in Mark 4, right? Middle of verse 38, look how they approach Jesus and they wake him up. The first thing they say to him is teacher. That's how they address him. It's an interesting title, isn't it? It's not an incorrect title. Jesus was a great teacher. That very day they had witnessed his great teaching. Yet we know he's more than that, isn't he? He's more than just a great teacher. But at this time, what they knew of him was that he was a great teacher. They knew him to be a prophet, but they didn't know more than that. We know, though, more than the disciples did at this point. 
They knew him as a teacher, as a prophet, but they did not yet know him as Lord and God. However, in our verses today, all of that changes. This storm brought an opportunity for them to learn something about the one they were following. Something that they could not have learned without this storm. Let's just review briefly. Yes, following Jesus can be costly. Yes, following Jesus can be confusing. But they learned in this moment, though, that following Jesus is worth it all. Verse 39 through 41. Let's read the last verses with me. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's amazing how quickly things change, right? In a heartbeat, in a moment, everything can be different. So is in the, cases, in the case in our verses today. This storm was threatening. And all at once it bowed in submission to the one that was standing before them. The fear the disciples were experiencing because of the storm now grew and was no longer directed at the storm, but was directed towards Jesus. The one they thought they knew, they realized was more than just a mere man. This would have been one of those turning points for the disciples where the curtain is pulled back ever so slightly and nothing will ever be the same again. That's why we see this story retold in other Gospels. They learned at this moment that this man who they saw as a prophet, who they saw as a teacher, has authority over the wind and the waves. In our English version, we see him rebuking the wind and saying to the sea, peace, be still. Yet in the original language of the New Testament, that peace, be still is just simply two words. The word translated peace means an involuntary stillness or inability to speak. I want to share that definition with you again. Kids, y'all sit down. Quit walking around. Word translated peace means an involuntary stillness or inability to speak. Follow me with this. Christ restrained this storm. He left it unable to speak. Knowing this adds weight to what we see at the end of verse 39. And there was great calm. Yeah, no kidding. The wind, the sea, lost its ability to speak. This is compounded with the next word that we see. The word translated, the phrase translated be still means to muzzle in the original language. Isn't that a great picture? Jesus muzzled the storm they were experiencing. Let me ask you. Do you know another that can muzzle the sea? Do you know another that can stop the wind? This gives us great imagery. These are strong words. Yet they demonstrate very clearly the authority that Jesus possessed. Now the other word that stands out in this section is the word rebuke. Which carries the meaning of forbidding something. 
Now, we've been placing ourselves in the shoes of the apostles throughout this story, right? Trying to imagine what they saw, imagine what they felt, what they might have been thinking. Remember, they feared for their lives, so they awoke Jesus, possibly expecting Jesus to fear as well. Again, we, we think of the story of Jonah, could not have been far from their minds. Yet as they awoke him, he turned and spoke to the wind and the sea, and it obeyed. Instantly, bowing in submission to its creator. Place yourself there in that moment. Imagine that scene. Imagine the one standing before you that controls the elements with his tongue. And we think about it. We're amazed by it. And rightfully so. It's an amazing story. But we have to take it a step further. Would we not also fear this man? If he could muzzle the wind What else can he do? This text goes far beyond him calming the storms in our life. Church, this is not what Mark had in mind. Nor do the disciples take this moment to go there. We don't see Andrew pausing and going, Oh good, I was going through a difficult time and I needed some peace. No, instead we see the disciples responding with great fear. They realize the one that was standing before them. We have to see that this passage is not directly about anything we have going on. Instead, this passage is about Jesus revealing who he is with great authority and power. In church, we need to see and be reminded of who he is. He is God in the flesh. And he is standing before them, speaking to the wind and bringing about a great calm. Again, these men had reason to fear. Think about it. Before this point to them, Jesus was simply a man. Now they knew better. They saw him as the one who possesses total authority over his creation for which they are subjection to. No more did they think of him as a fleeing prophet. Instead, they realized that he is the one for whom the prophet was fleeing before. That changes things. They're with him in the boat and they know that he knows their heart. He knows their thoughts. He knows their sins. Imagine standing before the one who knows you better than you know yourself. And then realizing that he has authority to judge you for your sins. Not only does he have authority over the wind and the waves, but he stands as judge before you because he created you. His authority is unchecked because there exists nothing above him. Of course they were afraid. This would have been similar to what the Israelites were experiencing at Mount Sinai. You remember the story, right? So they've been brought through the Red Sea. The Lord brings them to Mount Sinai. They're, they're, they're afraid because they hear the voice of God like a trumpet. They see the lightning and the fire on the mountain. They feel the ground shake. And they tremble in fear because they see the authority and they understand what it means. Church, we need to get a glimpse of this Jesus today. The disciples would learn even more following Jesus. They would see this. They they would know what it would mean for it to be costly to follow Him. They would experience times after this where following Jesus seemed confusing. Yet here, they begin to see that Jesus was worth it all. Whatever may come, whatever they were to experience, whatever He asks of them, He is worth it all. A church somewhere along the way, 
we have lost this great resolve to follow Christ, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of whether it makes sense or not. We've lost this great resolve in part because we've watered down stories like this to make it about us. Church, these verses are not about us. It's about him. And he is worthy of our complete devotion. He is worthy of our radical obedience. Church, he is worthy of it all. And these verses remind us of it today. So as we draw to a close right here, let me ask you, does your life display that he is worthy? I remind you, following Jesus will be costly. Friend, Scripture is clear. It could cost you your very life. But I want you to know, and Scripture is clear on this as well, that it is worth it. He is worth it. And He is worthy of it all. I cannot stand before you and promise that storms in your life will be avoided. I cannot promise you that He will speak into whatever circumstances you are faced with and bring peace. But I can guarantee you this, regardless of what you face, even terrible pain, suffering, death, Jesus has authority over it all. We see it in this story and we will continue to to see it play out in the coming weeks as we step into Mark chapter 5. And in this church, there is great hope and better news that He will just calm the storms in your life. And I hope you see that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time that You have given us to turn our attention to Your Word. But we thank you for these verses and just pray that uh, they would settle on our minds, that, Lord, you would remind us of, of who your son is and we'd see the importance of it uh, and, and pray, Father, that we would bow in submission to this authority. I pray, Father, now that as we begin our, our time of invitation, that you would be glorified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.